Part One of Chapter Twenty Two of Mr. Prohack by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Twenty Two. Mr. Prohack's Triumph. One. And where is your charming daughter? asked Mr. Softly Bishop so gently of Eve when he had greeted her and quite incidentally Mr. Prohack in the entrance hall of the Grand Babylon Hotel. He was alone. No sign of Miss Fancy. Sissy, said Eve calmly, I haven't the slightest idea. But I included her in my invitations, and Mr. Morphy too. Mr. Prohack was taken aback, foreseeing the most troublesome complications, and he glanced at Eve as if for guidance and support. He was nearly ready to wish that after all Sissy had not gone and got married secretly and prematurely. Eve, however, seemed quite undisturbed, though she offered him neither guidance nor support. Uh, "'Surely,' said Mr. Pro hesitatingly, "'surely you, you didn't mention Sissy in your letter to me?' "'Naturally I didn't, my dear fellow,' answered Mr. Bishop. "'I wrote to her separately, knowing the position taken up by the modern young lady. "'And she telephoned me yesterday afternoon that she and Morphy would be delighted to come.' "'Then if you know so much about the modern young lady,' said Eve, with bright and perfect self-possession, "'you wouldn't expect any daughter to arrive with her parents, would you?' Mr. Softly Bishop laughed. "'You're only putting off the evil moment,' said Mr. Prohack, in the silence of his mind, to Eve. And similarly, he said to Mr. Softly Bishop, "'I do wish you wouldn't call me my dear fellow. True, I come to your lunch, but I'm not your dear fellow, and I never will be.' "'I invited your son also, Prohack,' continued Mr. Bishop, "'together with Miss Winstock, or Warburton, she appears to have two names, to make a pair—to uh, make a pair, you understand.' "'but unfortunately he's been suddenly called out of town "'on the most urgent business.' "'As he uttered these last words, "'Mr. Bishop glanced in a peculiar manner "'partly at his nose and partly at Mr. Prohack. "'It was a singular feat of glancing, "'and Mr. Prohack uncomfortably wondered what it meant, "'for Charles lay continually on Mr. Prohack's chest, "'and at the slightest provocation "'Charles would lie more heavily than usual. "'Am I right in assuming that the necklace affair "'is satisfactorily settled?' Mr. Softly Bishop inquired, his spectacles gleaming and blinking at the adornment of Eve's neck. "'You are,' said Eve, "'but it wouldn't be advisable for you to be too curious about details.' Her aplomb, her sang-froid, astounded Mr. Prohack, and relieved him. With an admirable ease she went on to congratulate their host upon his engagement, covering him with petals of flattery and good wishes. Mr. Prohack could scarcely recognise his wife, and he was not sure that he liked her new worldliness quite as much as her old ingenuous and sometimes inarticulate simplicity. At any rate, she was a changed woman. He steadied himself, however, by a pertinent reflection. She was always a changed woman. Then Sissy and Ozzie appeared, looking as though they had been married for years. Mr. Prohack's heart began to beat. Ignoring Mr. Softly Bishop, Sissy embraced her mother with prim affectionateness, and Eve surveyed her daughter with affectionate solicitude. Mr. Prohack felt that he would never know what had passed between these two on the previous day, for they were a pair of sphinxes when they chose, and he was too proud to encourage confidences from Ozzie. Whatever it might have been, it was now evidently buried deep, and the common life, after a terrible pause, had resumed. "'How do you do, Miss Prohack?' said Mr. Softly Bishop, greeting. So glad you could come. 
Mr. Brohack suspected that his cheeks were turning pale, and was ashamed of himself. Even Sissy, for all her young, hard confidence, wavered. But Eve stepped in. "'Don't you know, Mr. Bishop? Oh, no, of course you don't. We ought to have told you. My daughter is now Mrs. Morphy. You see, in our family we all have such a horror of the conventional wedding and reception and formal honeymoon and so on, that we decided the marriage should be strictly private, with no announcements of any kind. I really think you are the first to know. One thing I've always liked about actresses is that in the afternoon you can read of them getting married that day, and then go and see them play the same evening. It seems to me so sensible. And as we were all of the same opinion in our house, especially Sissy and her father, there was no difficulty. Upon my word, said Mr. Softly Bishop, shaking hands with Ozzy, I believe I shall follow your example. Mr. Prohack sank into a chair. I feel rather faint, he said. Bishop, do you think we might have a cocktail or so? My dear fellow, how thoughtless of me, of course. Waiter, waiter. As Mr. Bishop swung round in the direction of waiters, Eve turned in alarm to Mr. Prohack. Mr. Prohack, with much deliberation, winked at her, and she drew back. Yes, he murmured, you'll be the death of me one day, and then you'll be sorry. I don't think a cocktail is at all a good thing for you, Dad, Sissy calmly observed. The arrival of Miss Fancy provided a distraction more agreeable than Mr. Prohack thought possible. He positively welcomed the slim, angular blonde, for she put an end to a situation which, prolonged another moment, would have resulted in a severe general constraint. "'You're late, my dear,' said Mr. Softly Bishop firmly. The girl's steely, blue-eyed glance shot out at the greeting, but seemed to drop off flatly from Mr. Bishop's adamantine spectacles like a bullet from Bessemer armour. "'Am I?' she replied uncertainly, in her semi-American accent. "'Where's the lady's cloakroom of this place?' "'I'll show you,' said Mr. Bishop, with no compromise. The encounter was of the smallest, but it made Mr. Brahack suspect that perhaps Mr. Bishop was not, after all, going into the great warfare of matrimony blindly or without munition. "'I've taken the opportunity to tell Miss Fancy that you will be the only unmarried woman at my lunch,' said Mr. Bishop amusingly when he returned from piloting his beloved. A neat fellow, beyond question. Miss Fancy had apparently to redress herself, judging from the length of her absence. Her cocktails, however, beguiled the suspense. "'Is that for me?' she asked, picking up a full glass when she came back. "'No, my dear,' said Mr. Bishop, "'it isn't. We shall go into lunch.' And they went into lunch, leaving unconsumed the cocktail which the abstemious and spartan sissy had declined to drink. Two. "'I suppose you've been to see the twelfth and thirteen, said Eve, in her new, grand, gracious manner to Miss Fancy, when the party was seated at a round, richly-flowered table, specially reserved by Mr. Softly Bishop on the embankment front of the restaurant, and the hors d'oeuvre had begun to circulate on the white cloth, which was as crowded as the gold room. "'I'm afraid I haven't,' muttered Miss Fancy weakly, but with due refinement. The expression of fear was the right expression. Eve had put the generally brazen woman in a fright at the first effort. And the worst was that Miss Fancy did not even know what the twelve and thirteen was, or were. At the opening of her debut at what she imagined to be the great, yet exclusive, fashionable world, Miss Fancy was failing. Of what used to be perfectly dressed and jewelled, to speak with a sometimes carefully corrected accent, 
to sit at the best table in the London restaurant most famous in the United States, to be affianced to the cleverest fellow she had ever struck, if the wonderful and famous hostess, Mrs. Prohack, whose desirable presence was due only to Softly's powerful influence in high circles, could floor her at the very outset of the conversation. It is a fact that Miss Fancy would have given the emerald ring of her left first finger to be able to answer back. All Miss Fancy could do was to smite Mr. Softly Bishop with a homicidal glance, for that he had not in advance put her wise about something called the Twelve and Thirteen. It is also a fact that Miss Fancy would have perished sooner than say to Mrs. Prohack the simple words, I haven't the slightest idea what the Twelve and Thirteen are. Eve did not disguise her impression that Miss Fancy's lapse was very strange and disturbing. "'I suppose you've seen the new version of the Sacre du Printemps, Miss Fancy,' said Mrs. Oswald Morphy, that exceedingly modern and self-possessed young married lady. Uh, "'Not yet,' said Miss Fancy, and foolishly added, uh, "'We were thinking of going to-night.' "'There won't be any more performances this season,' said Ozzie, that prince of authorities on the universe of entertainment. And in this way the affair continued between the four, while Mr. Softly Bishop, abandoning his beloved to her fate, chatted murmuringly with Mr. Prohack about the oil market, as to which, of course, Mr. Prohack was the prince of authorities. Mrs. Prohack and her daughter and son-in-law ranged at ease over all the arts, without exception, save the one art, that of musical comedy, in which Miss Fancy was versed. Mr. Prohack was amazed at the skilled cruelty of his women. He wanted to say to Miss Fancy, "'Don't you believe it? My wife is only a rather nice, ordinary, housekeeping sort of little woman. And as for my daughter, she cooks her husband's meals, and jolly badly, I bet.' He ought to have been pleased at the discomfiture of Miss Fancy, whom he detested and despised, but he was not. He yearned to succour her. He even began to like her. And not Eve and Sissy alone amazed him. Oswald amazed him. Oswald had changed. His black silk stock had gone the way of his ribboned eyeglass. His hair was arranged differently. He closely resembled an average plain man, he, the unique Aussie. With all his faults, he had previously been both good-natured and negligent, but his expression was now one of sternness and of resolute endeavour. Sissy had already metamorphosed him. Even now he was obediently following her lead and her mood. Mr. Prohack's women had evidently determined to revenge themselves for being asked to meet Miss Fancy at lunch, and Ozzie had been set on to assist them. Further, Mr. Prohack noticed that Sissy was eyeing her mother's necklace with a reprehending stare. The next instant he found himself the target of the same stare. The girl was accusing him of folly while questioning Ozzie's definition of the difference between Georgian and Neo-Georgian verse. The girl had apparently become the censor of society at large. Mysterious cross-currents ran over the table in all directions. Mr. Brohack looked around the noisy restaurant packed with tables, and wondered whether cross-currents were running invisibly over all the tables, and what was the secret force of fashionable fleeting convention which enabled women with brains far inferior to his own to use it effectively for the fighting of sanguinary battles. At last, when Miss Fancy had been beaten into silence, and the other three were carrying on a brilliant 
highbrowed conversation into the corpse of her up-to-dateness. Mr. Bragg's nerves reached the point at which he could tolerate the tragic spectacle no more, and he burst out vulgarly in a man-in-the-street vein, chopping off the brilliant conversation as with a chopper. "'Ah, Miss Fancy, tell us something about yourself.' The common-sounding phrase seemed to be a magic formula endowed with the power to break an awful spell. Miss Fancy gathered herself together, forgot that she had been defeated, and inaugurated a new battle. She began to tell the table not something, but almost everything, about herself, and it soon became apparent that she was no ordinary woman. She had never had a setback. In innumerable conversational duels she had always given the neat and deadly retort, and she had never been worsted, save by base combinations deliberately engineered against her, generally by women whom as a sex she despised even more than men. Her sincere belief that no biographical detail concerning Miss Fancy was too small to be uninteresting to the public amounted to a religious creed, and her memory for details was miraculous. She recalled the exact total of the takings at any given performance in which she was prominent in any city of the United States, and she could also give long extracts from the favourable criticisms of countless important American newspapers. By a singular coincidence, only unimportant newspapers had ever mingled blame with their praise of her achievements. She regarded herself with detachment as a remarkable phenomenon, and therefore she could impersonally describe her career without any of the ordinary restraints, just as a shopman might clothe or unclothe a model in his window. Thus she could display her heart and its history quite unreservedly. Do they not belong to the public? The astounded table learned that Miss Fancy was illustrious in the press of the United States as having been engaged to be married more often than any other actress. Yet she had never got as far as the altar, though once she had reached the church door, only to be swept away from it by a cyclone which unhappily finished off the bridegroom. What grey and tedious existences even Sissy had led! A monotonous engagement had been to the late Silas Angler. "'Something told me I should never be his wife,' she said vivaciously. "'You know the feeling we women have? "'And I wasn't much surprised to hear of his death. "'I had refused Silas eight times. "'Then in the end I promised to marry him by a certain date. "'He wouldn't take no, poor dear. "'Well, he was a gentleman, anyway. "'Of course it was no more than right that he should put me down in his will, "'but not every man would have done. "'In fact, it never happened to me before. "'Wasn't it strange I should have that feeling about never being his wife?' She glanced eagerly at Mr. Prohack and Mr. Prohack's women, and there was a pause in which Mr. Softy Bishop said, affectionately regarding his nose, "'Well, my dear, you'll be my wife, you'll find.' And he uttered this observation in a sharp tone of conviction that made a quite disturbing impression on the whole company, and not least on Mr. Prohack, who kept asking himself more and more insistently, "'Why is Softy Bishop marrying Miss Fancy, and why is Miss Fancy marrying Softy Bishop?' Mr. Brohap was interrupted in his private inquiry into this enigma by a very unconventional nudge from Sissy, who silently directed his attention to Eve, who seemingly wanted it. "'Your friend seems anxious to speak to you,' murmured Eve, in a low, rather roguish voice. His friend was Lady Massillon, who was just concluding a solitary lunch at a near table. He had not noticed her, being still sadly remiss in the business of existing fully in a fashionable restaurant. Lady Masculum's eyes confirmed Eve's statement. 
"'I'm sure Miss Fancy will excuse you for a moment,' said he. "'Oh, please!' implored Miss Fancy grandly. Mr. Brahack self-consciously carried his lankness and his big head across to Lady Massingham's table. She looked up at him with a composed but romantic smile. That is to say that Mr. Brohack deemed it romantic, and he leaned over the table and over Lady Massingham in a manner romantic to match. "'I'm just going off,' said she. Simple words from a portly and mature lady, yet for Mr. Brohack they were charged with all sorts of delicious secondary significances. "'What is the difference between her and Eve?' he asked himself, and then replied to the question in a flash of inspiration, "'I am romantic to her, and I am not romantic to Eve.' He liked this ingenious explanation. "'I wanted to tell you,' said she gravely, with beautiful melancholy, "'Charles is flambé. He's done in. I cannot help him. He will not let me. But if I see him to-night when he returns to town, I shall send him to you. He is very young, very difficult.' "'But I shall insist that he goes to you.' "'How kind you are,' said Mr. Prohack, touched. Lady Massillum rose, shook hands, seemed to blush, and departed. An interview as brief as it had been strange. Mr. Prohack was thrilled not at all by the announcement of Charlie's danger, perhaps humiliation, but by the attitude of Lady Massillum. He had his plans for Charlie. He had no plans affecting Lady Massillum. Mr. Softly Bishop's luncheon had developed during the short absence of Mr. Brohack. Its splendour, great from the first, had increased. If tables ever do groan, which is perhaps doubtful, this table was certainly groaning. Mr. Softly Bishop was just dismissing, with bland and negligent approval, the majordomo of the restaurant, with whom, like all truly important personages, he appeared to be on intimate terms but the chief development of the luncheon disclosed itself in the conversation. Mr. Softly Bishop had now taken charge of the talk, and was expatiating to a hushed and crushed audience his plans for a starring world tour for his future wife, who listened to them with genuine admiration on her violet-tinted face. "'Eliza won't be in it with me when I come back,' she explained suddenly, with deep conviction, with anticipatory bliss, with a kind of rancorous felicity. Mr. Prohack understood. Miss Fancy was uncompromisingly jealous of her half-sister's renown. To outdo that renown was the main object of her life, and Mr. Softly Bishop's claim on her lay in the fact that he had shown her how to accomplish her end, and was taking charge of the arrangements. Mr. Softly Bishop was her trainer and her manager. He had dazzled her by the variety and ingenuity of his resourceful schemes, and his power over her was based on a continual implied menace that if she did not strictly obey all his behests, she would fail to realise her supreme desire. And when Mr. Softly Bishop gradually drew Ozzie into a technical tete-a-tete, Mr. Prohack understood further why Ozzie had been invited to the feast. Upon certain branches of Mr. Bishop's theatrical schemes, Ozzie was an acknowledged expert, and Mr. Bishop was obtaining, for the price of a luncheon, the fruity knowledge and wisdom acquired by Ozzie during long years of close attention to business. For Mr. Brohack, it was an enthralling scheme. The luncheon closed gorgeously upon the finest cigars and cigarettes, the finest coffee, and the finest liqueurs that the unique establishment could provide. Sissy refused every allurement except coffee, and Miss Fancy was permitted nothing but coffee. "'Do not forget your throat, my dear,' 
and softly Bishop authoritatively interjected into Miss Fancy's circumstantial recital of the expenses of the bouquets which had been hurled at her at the new National Theatre at Washington. And by the way, looking at his watch, do not forget the appointment with the elocutionist. But aren't you coming with me? demanded Miss Fancy, alarmed. Already she was learning the habit of helplessness, so attractive to men and so useful to them. These remarks broke up the luncheon party, which all the guests assured the deprecating host had been perfectly delightful, with the implied addition that it had also constituted the crown and summit of their careers. Eve and Sissy were prodigious in superlatives to such an extent that Mr. Perhack began to fear for Mr. Softly Bishop's capacity to assimilate the cruder forms of flattery. His fear, however, was unnecessary. When the host and his beloved departed, Miss Fancy was still recounting titbits of her biography. "'But I'll tell you the rest another time,' she cried from the moving car. She had emphatically won the second battle. From the first blow she had never even looked like losing, and she had shown no mercy, quite properly following the maxim that war is war. Even Sissy seemed to rise with difficulty to their knees, after the ruthless adversary, tired of standing on their prostrate form, had scornfully walked away. 3. Well, sighed Mrs. Prohack, with the maximum of expressiveness, glancing at her daughter as one woman of the world at another. They were lingering, as it were convalescent, after the severe attack and defeat in the foyer of the hotel. Well, sighed Sissy, flattered by the glance, and firmly taking her place in the fabric of society. Well, father, we always knew you had some queer friend, but really these were the limit. And the extravagance of the thing! That luncheon must have cost at least twenty pounds, and I do believe he had special flowers, too. When I think of the waste of money and time that goes on daily in places like these, I wonder if there's any England left. It ought to be stopped by law. My child, said Mr. Prohack, I observe with approbation that you are beginning to sit up and take notice. Centuries already divide you from the innocent creature who used to devote her nights and days to the teaching of dancing to persons who had no conception of the seriousness of life. I agree with your general criticism, but let us remember that all this wickedness does not date from the day before yesterday. It's been flourishing for some thousands of years, and all prophecies about it being overtaken by nemesis have proved false. Still, I'm glad you've turned over a new leaf. Sissy discreetly but unmistakably tossed her young head. "'Oswald, dearest,' said she, "'it's time you were off.' "'It is,' Ozzy agreed, and off he went, to resume the serious struggle for existence. He, who until quite recently had followed the great theatrical convention that though space may be a reality, time is not. "'I don't mind the extravagance, because after all it's good for trade,' said Eve. "'What I—' "'Mother, darling!' Sissy protested. "'Do you get these extraordinary ideas from about luxury being good for trade? Surely you ought to know.' "'I dare say I ought to know all sorts of things I don't know,' said Eve, with dignity. "'But there's one thing I do know, and that is that the style of those two dreadful people was absolutely the worst I've ever met. The way that woman gabbled, and all about herself, and what an accent, and the way she held her fork.' "'Lady,' said Mr. Bragg, don't be angry because she beat you. Beat me? Yes, beat you, both of you. 
you talked her to a standstill at first, but you couldn't keep it up. Then she began, and she talked you to a standstill, and she could keep it up. She left you, for all practical purposes, dead on the field, my tigresses. And I'm very sorry for her, he added. Dad, said Sissy sternly, why do you always try to be so clever with us? You know as well as we do that she's a creature, and that there's nothing to be said for her at all. Nothing to be said for her? Mr. Black smiled tolerantly. Why, she was the star of the universe for Silas Angmering, the founder of our fortune. She was the finest woman he'd ever met. And Angmering was a clever fellow, let me tell you. You call her a creature. Yes, the creature of destiny, like all of us, except, of course, you. I beg to inform you that Miss Fancy went out of this hotel a victim, an unconscious victim, but a victim. She is going to be exploited. Mr. Softly Bishop, my co-heir, will run her for all she is worth. He will make a lot of money out of her. He will make her work as she has never worked before. He will put a value on all her talents for his own ends. And he will deprive her of most of her accustomed pleasures. In fifteen years there will be nothing left of Miss Fancy except an exhausted wreck with a spurious reputation. But Mr. Softly Bishop will still be in his prime and in the full enjoyment of life and he will spend on himself the riches that she has made for him, and allow her about sixpence a week. And the most tragic and terrible thing of all is that she will think she owes everything to him. No! If I was capable of weeping, I should have wept at the pathos of the spectacle of Miss Fancy, as she left us just now, unconscious of her fate, and revelling in the most absurd illusions. That poor defenceless woman, who has had the misfortune not to please you, is heading straight for a lifelong martyrdom. Mr. Prag ceased impressively. "'And serve her right,' said Eve. "'I've met cats in my time, but—' And Eve also ceased. "'And I am not sure,' added Mr. Prag, still impressively, "'and I am not sure that the ingenuous and excellent Oswald Morphy "'is not heading straight in the same direction.' And he gazed at his adored daughter, who exhibited a faint flush, and then laughed lightly. "'Yes,' said Mr. Prag. You are very smart, my girl. If you had shown violence, you would have made a sad mistake. That you should laugh with such a brilliant imitation of naturalness gives me hope of you. Let us seat Carthew on the car. Mr. Bishop's luncheon, though I admit it was exceedingly painful, has, I trust, not been without its useful lessons to us, and I do not regret it. For myself, I admit it has taught me that even the finest and most agreeable women, such as those with whom I have been careful to surround myself in my domestic existence, are monsters of cruelty. Not that I care. I have arranged with Mamma that you shall come to dinner to-night, said Sissy. No formality, please. Mayn't your mother wear her pearls? asked Mr. Prohack. I hope you noticed, Arthur, said Eve, with triumphant satisfaction, how your Miss Fancy was careful to keep off the subject of jewels. Mother's pearls, said Sissy primly, are mother's affair. Mr. Brohack did not feel at all happy. And yet, he asked himself, what have I done? I am perfectly innocent. End of Part 1 of Chapter 22